We're going through a letter to a church that had a lot of problems, which it, it always fascinates me how relevant the Bible is, how it transcends every culture, and it, and it zooms in on the problems of this world that in many ways there's nothing new under the sun. There's always the problem of greed. There's always the problem of families not getting along. And there's always the problem of trying to live one way while talking another way, what we call hypocrisy. So in this book, an easy way to think of it is that Paul, as he's writing to this church and trying to rebuild a healthy community of Christians, he wants to deal with several things. We saw in chapters 1 through 4, he was dealing with divisions. They, they weren't getting along. But now in chapters 5 and 6, he's dealing with what, with what for, for the sake of just keeping um, sort of a, a way to remember it, divisions, disorder. So they've got several disorders. The first one we saw last time we studied this was that they had incest in the church and that they were tolerating this. That They, they were like, hey, this is okay. We love everybody. And we saw in chapter 5 that, that, that Paul told them, no, that's not how Christians handle blatant sin. If a person calls themselves a born-again Christian, they can't just persist in that behavior and you go, hey, come on in. We love everybody. But, but he says we have to deal with that. And so at the end of chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, those who are outside, God judges. So he goes, as far as unbelievers go, let's, let's allow God to deal with them. But believers on the inside, we deal with them. And he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, this unrepentant professing Christian, and that's what we call church discipline. But while he's on the subject of judging, it's almost like he, he, he does sort of a wordplay. It's, it's kind of like this. He says, okay, we don't judge outsiders. But then he goes, but on the other hand, we don't go outside to judge inside. And you're like, wait, we don't judge outsiders, but we don't go outside to judge inside. What's that talking about? What it's talking about is this perennial question is, is it okay to sue someone? We live in a litigious culture where any opportunity that we have, man, people want to sue. People want to exploit. And I'm not suggesting that everyone's doing this, but it's very, very common. And the problem is not new. This goes all the way back to before the time of Christ, but here we have an incident. Within the Christian community, there probably weren't a whole lot of wealthy people in the Corinthian church, but some of them were. And one of the problems with wealth among many, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, but wealth brings with it temptations. One of them is the temptation to pride. The Bible says instruct those who are wealthy not to, to be proud or boastful. But there's also the temptation to want more and more by exploiting others, by, by taking advantage of the poor because they don't have the resources to defend themselves. So apparently within this particular culture and in this church, there were some wealthy people who were exploiting some of the other Christians. Perhaps the commentary suggests that maybe it was a land acquisition. Corinth was not like... Um, Stone Harbor, where all the land's already bought. People were gobbling up the land and, 
and taking advantage of people at times. And we've all seen many movies about, you know, they took the farm away from those poor people. They took the, the property away. So whatever was going on, they were actually taking one another to court. And so what we learn from this passage is that that's not how God wants Christians to deal with one another. So I want us to pray. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll think it through in its, in its relevance to us today. So let's pray first. Father, may the Holy Spirit speak to us as we all have some stake in, in learning about this. It's a wonderful passage that gives us great encouragement, but also sober warnings. So may your Spirit encourage us to think through this whole concept of justice and retribution and lawsuits and retaliation. May you teach us and may we hear from you and may we be fed and encouraged by our Lord Jesus, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Let's, let's just read the passage together. Paul says, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law, in other words, to go to court, before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, aren't you competent to constitute the smallest law, law courts? He says, don't you, don't you even know that we're going to judge angels? So how much more the matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and, and, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it's already a defeat for you, a loss, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and here he says it again, and that your brothers. Don't you know, look at this verse, don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, that's important. Do not be deceived. There's a lot of people who are deceived about thinking they're Christians. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, as John just mentioned, you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Let's start with this principle in verse 1. And it's pretty straightforward. If you're taking notes and, and we want you to continue to learn how to read the Bible, you don't have to be like, a theologian, just learn to read your way through the Bible and, and, and say, God, what are you saying to me? We learn here that Christians are not to take other Christians to court. I mean, there's nothing rocket scientific about this. Does anyone, in fact, the, the language of it, 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 the way it would be translated, does anyone have the gall? In other words, uh, does anyone dare, Paul's saying, to, to, to take another Christian to court? 
So this isn't a new problem, right? People seek to have adjudication when they feel they've been wronged. And, and we've all probably experienced that. I once um, put a, a, a down pay or a deposit on a home, got the building inspection done. It was like a $500 building inspection or $500 deposit. Building inspector came back, said the roof is in bad shape, right? So I, through my realtor, responded to the owner, um, if you fix the roof, we'll buy the house. And they said, well, the building inspection doesn't say it has to be replaced. It just says the roof is in bad shape. Oh, well, so we said, well, we want out. They said, nope. And they said, go ahead. And they, they literally told my realtor, go ahead and take us to court. It'll cost you more to get that 500 back. So at that point, I was very blessed to have a Christian realtor, because he didn't have to do this, but he said, hey, if you still buy a home through me, I'll make up that $500 that that, that real estate agency ripped you off. I mean, there's times where you're like, it's not right. But when it comes to believers, uh, we've all known of circumstances. I knew of a Christian who, who borrowed a, a motorcycle from his friend, crashed it, and then said, well, I'm sorry. And his friend said, well, I know you're sorry, but I need you to pay for it. He said, I'm not paying for it. So what do you do then? What do you do when Christians wrong one another, especially financially? So there's the principle. Christians are not to take other Christians to court. Now, this passage isn't dealing with unbelievers. Okay, we'll come back to that. But for now, it, it, I, I think it's pretty clear. But Paul gives two reasons now in verses 2 through 4. So if you're taking notes, the first reason he gives is that Christians are able to handle matters inside the family. Christians are competent to handle it within the community. There's no need to go outside before the world. In fact, this, this really illustrates a principle that we've all used or heard this term. You shouldn't air your dirty laundry. Now, I'm not exactly sure where that came from because I've never seen like laundry hanging out on a thing that was muddy or whatever. But the idea, especially among families, is that if, if we're having a dispute in the family, there's no reason why we should go around and broadcast and say, guess what my wife said or you know what my kid did? In fact, there's, there's an ugliness to that when families make their dirt public. In fact, a funeral director once said this to me. He said, you know that phrase, where there's a will, there's a way? He said, my experience is where there's a will, there's fighting relatives. And so the first reason why Paul says, look, why would you go outside? He goes, think about who you are as Christians. Look at verse 2. He says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? No, what does he mean by that? We believers will judge the world? In what way? Jesus, the Bible says, is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So I thought Jesus is the final judge. And he says, no, no, Christians are as well. This is a difficult verse, but most people trace it back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, the, the, the prophet Daniel predicted a time when he saw 
the Son of Man, Jesus, come before the ancient of days and the kingdom was given to him. But in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 22, it says, judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And so the Jewish people from that time on picked up on that idea that one day believers will participate in judging this godless world. Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to unfold, and I don't know that God has has determined that we should know all of that, but it's an interesting thing to think about. He goes, so why would you go outside? Believers are one day going to judge the world, this world system that's this anti-God. We went through the book of Revelation, this anti-God, leave God out of our lives system in which we live. One day, the tables will be turned and we'll stand with the Lord Jesus as the world bows to Jesus and is expelled into the lake of fire. But then he says this in verse 3, don't you know that we shall judge angels? So, so he gives these, these eschatological like statements. Oh yeah, don't, don't forget, we're going to judge the world, we're going to judge angels. And you're going, wait, what? How many of you knew that, that one day you're going to judge angels? You'll be like, stand before me, Gabriel. Well, wait, is that what it means? And again, there's some ambiguity to this. The Old Testament does not really give us a whole lot, but I think it would be safe to say that this is talking about demons, fallen angels. And one of the things that I think perhaps is, is a hint at this is in Genesis chapter 3. You remember what God said to the devil? He spoke of the Messiah. He said, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head, right? And so that idea that Christ would one day destroy Satan at judgment, we're all like, yes. But as time went on, the Spirit of God revealed to Paul that somehow we Christians will participate in that, that we will have a part in that. In fact, in Romans 16, Paul takes that phrase. I would have expected Paul to say, one day God will judge Satan under the foot of Jesus. But you know what he says in Romans 16? One day God will crush Satan under your feet. He says that to the whole church. And so there's a sense in which, I, 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 you remember that picture of the snake, don't, don't tread on me? And, and I look forward to that day when God will, uh, through Jesus Christ, cast the devil into the lake of fire. But somehow there seems to be this hint that God is going to, to, to look to his children and say, bring your foot over here. You, you guys put your foot on here too. Now, is it because we're able? Is it because we're worthy? No, it's because he's worthy and because we're his children and we're his heirs and he's appointed us to rule with him. It's all a work of grace. But Paul goes, based on this eschatological reality that one day you'll judge the universe and you'll judge angels, you can't handle these civil matters about somebody who took too much from somebody. He, he's like, why would you go outside? So the first reason why, why Paul's telling us that, that we shouldn't do this is because we're capable. Christians are capable. He says, look in verse 4, if, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, some Bibles say those who are despised in the church. So, does that mean when I see Judge Judy, I go, I hate her. I hate all judges. Judges are bad. No, I don't think that's what he means. He uses the word in verse 1. He says, why go to law before the unrighteous? Later, he's going to say, 
Why go to law before unbelievers? And here he goes, these who are of no account in the church. In other words, people who don't know Christ do not have the mind of Christ. Intellectually, they might be highly intelligent on the human level, but in God's sight, they're often what he would call fools because what they believe about the great truths of life, where we came from, why we're here, where we're going, are absolutely wrong and false. And so Paul goes, yeah, he's not discrediting the honorable judge. He's simply saying, we don't look to Carl Sagan to tell us about where we came from, and we don't look to the Supreme Court to tell us the realities of life. So he says, why would you be going outside? And then he sort of uses um, a little sarcasm. Remember, that they were, they were proposing that they were so wise. They're like, you should come to my fellowship because I'm so wise. And Paul goes, if you have been arguing about who's more wise, knuckleheads, don't you have anybody wise in your own fellowship that you can say, well, if we can't resolve it, let's ask this guy. Now, interestingly, look what he says here in verse 5. I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Go back to chapter 4, verse 14. He says, I don't write these things to shame you. But now that's off the table. He goes, when it comes to this, shame on you. Is that, is that something that Christians should ever say? Apparently, the, there are times that perhaps it is appropriate in a loving way to say to another person, you should be ashamed of that. Not because, oh, I'm better than you, but Paul says, that's really, really not how Christians roll. That's not what we do. So why shouldn't we take Christians to court? He says, number one, because we're able to handle it inside the family. But secondly, and maybe even more importantly, the reason we shouldn't do that is he says, if you don't handle it in the family, it discredits Christ to those outside the family. Think about that. If you're a Christian, a true born-again Christian, you should want with all your heart everybody you know to become a Christian. If your Christianity is just sort of like a religion among many and, hey, let the Muslims have their, everybody's, you know, they're all railroads going to the same terminal. If that's your Christianity, then I'm not sure you know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to God but through me, it should be our passion and desire that as many as possible will come to Jesus, right? Starting with my family and my loved ones, then with the people that I work with, my neighbors, and then even my enemies. We should long, and if we don't long, we should, we should ask God to have mercy on us because if he was so kind as to save me, how can I be so dismissive of those who don't know him yet? So one of the principles that Paul really emphasized is the importance of how we live to attract people to Christianity. I've often used this illustration. We all like Super Bowl commercials. We like to watch them because we know that they spent millions of dollars and they are going to be good. And then every once in a while we see one and we go, wait, what? Like the one that, that I still laugh at is the guy who, who did a commercial for the oat milk. And he's the owner of the company and he can't sing well, but he decided that he would sing in a field in the middle of an oat field 
with a um, keyboard, he would sing the jingle for the oat milk. And some of you probably don't remember that, but if you went back and sort of reprocessed, you'd be like, hmm, that probably didn't land because it wasn't supposed to be a parody. I, I think he was serious and he really missed it. I don't think any of us saw that commercial going, I want to go get a glass of oat milk. But at the same time, think about how you're a commercial each day for Christ. In fact, someone once said, we're often the only Bible that people read. And so Paul frequently would say to the, to the believers how significant it is to live in, in, in the appropriate way. Look at verse 6. He goes, if you go to law with your brother before unbelievers, that's his point. You're discrediting the gospel. I, I, I thought I heard somewhere that Jesus said, you'll know that you're you're, the, the, the world's going to know that you're my followers because you love each other. That, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And then we do love each other. We just sue one another. And Paul's going, do you not see the inconsistency there? Would you sue your grandmom to get a piece of the farm? Some of you go, absolutely. <laughs> if she wasn't run over by a reindeer, I was already in the process. I had the tort ready. And, and that's why you need to hear the gospel. So, on numerous occasions, Paul says, let's conduct ourselves in a way that the gospel looks good. In fact, he said in 1 Timothy, if you were a servant to others, he said, conduct yourself worthy of the, uh, of the gospel so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. What is the gospel according to you? As, as, as people... As, as people look at your life. Number one, do they know that you're a Christ follower? Have you ever put that out there? It, it's disturbing how many Christians won't even put that out there. They're just like, I witnessed by my life. And I'm like, no, that's not what Jesus asked us to do. He asked us to witness by our life and our lips. Confess with your mouth. So one reason why people don't want to put it out there, because they're like, if I put it out there at work, then I'm a Christian, then I'd have to live that way. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> exactly. So, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, when you appoint elders, leaders in your church, it says, they should have a good reputation with those on the outside. Now, this would be an interesting thing for us to go around and survey one another's neighbors. Hey, what do you think of so-and-so? Survey the people that you and I work with. What do you think of so-and-so? Survey the people that young people go to school with. What do you, what do you think of so-and-so? Do they act like a Christian? They're like, he almost shot my dog for going to the bathroom. He still owes me $300. He in fact, one time I had a guy speak in our church, a, a former church I used to pastor. And I, you've heard me tell this story. He said, wait, that guy goes to your church. I work with him. I said, you work with him? He's a leader in our church. He goes, he's, he, he's a leader in your church? Whew. He said, you ought to see how he speaks and acts at work. I wouldn't even have known he was a Christian. So this is a real challenge. It's not necessarily wrong to have an issue with another Christian, but, but the idea here is why would you air it before unbelievers? So remember that in your family, okay? Children, there's no need to talk about your family issues with everybody. Now, of course, if you feel in danger or there's some great problem, of course you're going to seek your pastor or somebody to talk to. But in general, this family principle of, hey, how do I handle a dispute with another Christian? 
Paul says, let's keep it in the family. So, verse 7, he's going to say, I've got a better alternative. You shouldn't sue one another because you can handle it on the inside. Number two, because it's a bad testimony. But here's the alternative. What's the alternative? He goes, how about the example of Jesus? What's that? Take it for Jesus. The non-retaliation ethic of the Christian faith. This is hard for Americans to swallow. Let them come for me. God, guns and guts. Yeah, they're going to pay for it. I have my rights. See, that might be what the world teaches us, but it's not, it's not what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus says, blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake. Now, I'm not suggesting that if the government said, hand over your guns, that this is what Christians and everyone should do. But, but I am suggesting that if, if you are persecuted for your Christian faith, that we should be non-retaliatory. I don't have any aspirations that a good idea would be to go over to Afghanistan and find the small community of believers who are meeting in underground churches and give them guns so they can shoot their way out of there. Okay, so, so I realize there's political things, but when it comes to, to Christianity, Jesus wants us to adopt this ethic of non-retaliation. Sure, it's just and it's right, but the Bible says do not take your own revenge, but leave room for God. Now, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. In fact, he asks a very difficult question. He says in verse 7, already the fact that you're in court with a believer is a loss already, regardless of whether you win or lose in court, because you've already lost. Why? Because you've discredited the gospel. But then he asks a very painful question, verse 7. Why not rather be wronged and defrauded? Why not just take the loss? Now, I could think of a hundred reasons why not, couldn't you? I need that money. It ain't right. That guy's a jerk. If I let him get away, I mean, I could think of a million reasons why not to be wronged. But oftentimes, I have to search my heart and say, okay, what would happen if I absorb the loss? Well, then I'm going to, uh, then I won't have that money that I need to, well, I thought of an analogy here. Do you think if you absorbed a loss for the sake of Christ and the gospel to follow his example that the Lord would be incapable or unwilling of providing for that need? In other words, is this that much different from giving as a Christian? Oftentimes Christians will say a very dumb statement. I can't afford to give. Uh, that's a dumb statement. That's not biblical. It's not Christian. In essence, I think it would be better for Christians to say, we can't afford not to give because Jesus has taught us over and over again that when we give, he will provide for us. But giving is an act of faith. If I say, but if I give God 10% of what I have, which I'm not suggesting God commands you to give 10%, but if I give God, how am I going to... And that's the point. God goes, give, and it will be given to you. 
He's given us this principle over and over again in Scripture that the Lord will provide for us. So, so God will meet all of my needs. Well, I can't allow him to get away with it because I need that money. And God goes, and didn't I promise that I will provide for your needs? So when he says, why not rather be wronged or cheated? I understand it feels unfair. Why should I let that swindler get away with it? But Gordon Fee had an interesting question. He goes, if you're living like a non-Christian where selfishness as well as in its sordid and domesticated form still rules, you could give a thousand reasons why not to be wronged. But often it's motivated by self-protection and self-gain. So it sort of causes us to have a soul-searching, you know, moment to go, God, I, I don't like that. But, but think of some of these scriptures. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He did me wrong. Well, I'll get him. 1 Corinthians 4, 12. Paul goes, when we're reviled, we're blessed. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, it says, it finds favor with God. Listen to this. If for the sake of your conscience toward God, you suffer unjustly, what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what's right and you suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You ready for this? And he says this, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So that's what, the, the, the way I worded this is, there's a better alternative when people wrong us. If at all possible, let's follow Jesus' example. Let, let's, let's endure the loss. Let's have a non-retaliation mentality. And that can only come by the grace of God. That can only come by the Lord changing my whole worldview towards others, towards my own possessions, towards him. So, Paul closes this section with a warning and encouragement. It's kind of both. It, it, it's a sobering warning and yet a very encouraging passage. He has listed a list of sinful vices earlier in chapter 5. He says, I don't want you to associate with anyone who calls themselves a believer, and he lists some vices, and one of those vices was a swindler. So, cheaters, right? But what he's going to do is he's going to put out a warning here, and the warning is this, and it's very important that this lands on all of our ears. Persistent, flagrant living in ungodly behavior means that you're probably not a Christian. And I'm going to explain that, but let me just say it again. To persistently, flagrantly, continually live in an ungodly lifestyle, a habitual practice of flagrant violations of the law of God means that you're probably not a Christian. You say, well, Pastor, what does that mean? This is important that we understand this. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, there have been people who have actually said, oh, this isn't talking about whether you go to heaven. This just means you won't get any rewards. 
I couldn't disagree with that more. This is about whether you're in or out. He says, now, when, when you first read that, you're like, so, so what do I have to do? Always do what's right and then I'll get to heaven? No, of course not. In fact, the Bible says none of us are righteous. We're all exceedingly sinful. But when Christ forgives us of our sins, the consequence of that is that we begin to live a different way because of our new identity. And to claim to have a new identity and to have been forgiven by Jesus and to not live that way could mean that a person is deceived about their salvation. Now, let, let, let's look at this. He gives a list of sins, and I, I want to talk about them briefly because it's worth thinking about. He says, do not be deceived. And every time he gives this warning, he goes, I told you before and I'll tell you again, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't let anyone deceive you with whatever they say. It ain't going to happen. If a person lives a lifestyle, he says, neither fornicators. Now, fornicator is a person who is having sex before they're married, just regularly sleeping around. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers. This is a person who's having regular affairs. They're, they're sleeping around, right, with, and they're married. Now, the next two words I want to explain briefly, he says, effeminate people or homosexuals. The word effeminate, it is not talking about your personality. The, the, the Greek word here means a soft one, and it would be the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. But there are people, as 2 Peter 3 says, who will twist the scriptures to their own destruction, who take a passage like this and say, hey, the word there for homosexual is a rare word. That's the only place it's used. It just means male sex. So um, we've misunderstood this. This is just talking about if you have, uh, if you just go sleep with somebody, that's wrong. But, but it's okay to marry another man. That is a distortion of scripture. And, and every passage that people have tried to twist about this let me urge you, our culture, our, our kids are being raised with this idea that if we say this is wrong, that we're hateful. We're not hateful. I literally had someone here come up and ask me quite a while ago, what, what's your view on homosexuality? And I asked them, well, what do you mean about that? I said, what's your view on fornication? What's your view on adultery? They said, well, I think it's wrong. And I said, well, and I just read them this passage. I said, I'm not selecting one individual sin, but it mentions fornicators, adulterers, and homosexuals. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. The Old Testament is full of, it's not that God hates people, and, and I want to be sensitive here that if you have same-sex attraction, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but a person who habitually practices this lifestyle. And then he goes on. He says, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Does that mean if I do any of these things that I'm not going to heaven? Not at all. That, that's, that's not his point at all. His point is this, and this is taught by Jesus and all the apostles, that if you are a born-again Christian, but you continually live habitual, flagrant, ungodly violations of God's law with no repentance, no remorse. The Bible will frequently use the term practice this lifestyle. 
then you're not a Christian. So let me try to illustrate this. There's a great difference between struggling and enduring sin and delighting and enjoying and persisting in sin. I hope that that, that's, that, that, that helps you to understand this. Christians can do any of these things. Christians can be murderers. David murdered someone. But the mark of a born-again person is that they will not persist and continually live this lifestyle. If you're born again, the Holy Spirit's inside of you. He's not going to go, well, you're my kid. I, oh, that's okay. He will convict us. God will discipline us. The Bible says, if you are without discipline, you're not a child of God. And so, so Jesus said it this way, and sometimes Christians have inadvertently become terrified by this verse. Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom. Only those who do the will of my Father. And you go, oh, I don't think, but, but, he, but the next verse, he explains what I mean by that. He goes, depart from me, you who practice wickedness. So I'm not suggesting here if you're struggling with porn and masturbation and, or fornication or adultery or, or any of these sins listed that you're not a Christian. But if you persist in that practice and it doesn't bother you and you have no desire to repent, Paul goes, don't let anyone deceive you. 1 John 3, 9 says it so well. John says, no one who is born of God will continually practice sin. He cannot because God's seed abides in him. So this verse is not intended us, for us to go around saying, you're not a Christian because you do this. But it's intended to simply be a mirror that says, if you continually live that way and, and that doesn't bother you, you're living together and you're not married, you're sleeping together and you're not married, you're having an affair and you call yourself a Christian and you're okay with that. I remember when Ray Boltz came out, who was a famous singer, he wrote the song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord, in an article in Christianity Today and he said, look, I've been fighting homosexuality, that's who I am and you're going to have to get over it and I know God's going to still let me into heaven and I'm going, wow, that's sad. I think that's what Paul's warning against. Don't let anyone deceive you. On the other hand, maybe you've watched as Joshua Harris in this painful process of departing from Christianity. At least he had the integrity as he moved towards um, adopting a homosexual lifestyle. He had the integrity to say this, based on what I read in the scripture, I guess I'm not a Christian. And so this verse is not intended to frighten those of you who struggle with sin but it's supposed to frighten those who persistently indulge in sin and go, I don't care. Mom told me I raised my hand at Backyard Bible Club. I know I'm saved. So, but Paul doesn't end with a warning. He ends with an encouragement. He goes, but Corinthians, that's who you were. Now, first of all, I find that encouraging, right? Don't you? That the church isn't for good people. The church is for sinners. Sinners are welcome here. In fact, you've heard me say this before. If you're not a sinner, you probably won't won't fit in around here. So don't let everyone's smiles and nice outfits make you think we have it all together. That's the whole point. Jesus said those who are sick don't need a physician. The first qualification of becoming a Christian is to know your need. I need a savior. I'm a sinner. So Paul says to these Corinthians, that, that's who you were. I had a guy ask me that. He goes, I still struggle with homosexual attraction and I'm going to a church in Philly and they told me it's okay. Can I be a Christian homosexual? I go, no. That's not who you are. That's who you were. Don't call yourself a Christian homosexual. I'm not a Christian adulterer. 
we're a new creature in Christ. We're not just forgiven. We have been absolutely changed on the inside. God has given us a new heart. And with that new heart, you have new desires and a new capacity to obey Christ. If that doesn't make sense to you, then just cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, change my heart. Christianity is not about cleaning up the outside of the cup. It's about a changed heart. And when God in his mercy changes your heart, it's going to change your beliefs, and suddenly it's going to change your behavior because gradually you're going to move away from that. So let me close with these encouraging words. He goes, that's who you were, but you were washed. You're forgiven. Don't let the devil keep you in the rearview mirror. Yeah, you know what you did five years ago? You've repented of that. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. Your past is all washed away. Isn't that encouraging? You were washed. You were justified. Or I'm sorry, first he says you were sanctified, which means you have been set apart by God. Among the seven billion people of this world, every Christian, God goes, I have washed you clean, and now you're one of mine. Now do, do me a, a favor, even though it's not really a favor, live that way. Show the world this attractive alternative of being a loving person who tries to do what's right. And I will help you. And I will change the way you treat your wife. And I will change the way you treat your husband. And I will change the way you handle your money. And I will change the way you raise your kids. And I will change your heart because you're set apart. And then he says, and by the way, you're justified. That word means you have been declared righteous. We're not righteous yet, perfect, but we have been declared righteous. God sees you as though you're completely forgiven. So let's close with these applications. Number one, if you call yourself a Christian, what's the Lord saying here? Live like one. Live like one. You say, well, what about I've been cursing at work? Then, then go to the people you work with and say, hey, I want to apologize for the way I've been talking. I'm a Christian. And the Lord has been showing me that, that that's, that's not who I am. Secondly, let's, let's be reminded not to, 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 to put our stakes too deep in our material possessions. I deserve this. I own this. This year, let's work on being more generous. And even if God calls us to, to be willing to absorb a loss out of love for others. This is convicting. Somebody cuts me off. I'm ready to lay on the horn and let them have it. And God's like, wait a minute. Is that how Jesus, is that, is that the ethic of Jesus? To be humble, non-retaliatory. This takes grace, doesn't it? But think about what impact our church can have on this community if every one of us takes this seriously and we're out there loving people, serving people, and trying to do what's right. And this is all done by the grace of God. Paul says, it's by the Spirit of God. So as we close, let's ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to really help us this year to live in a way that's vibrant, that's real. Hopefully, you've been convicted of something. I have. There's, there's areas that we want to grow and change. But what an encouraging passage. And if in any way this has pro provoked in you some questions like, well, how do I know? How do I know whether I've been washed? How do I know if I'm forgiven? That's what we're here. We're, we're here to help you find Jesus. We're here to help you to settle that. And please just let us know. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you've called us out of our sin into a new community. And Lord, we're, we're all messed up in one way or another. We all are dysfunctional. We all have brokenness from what has happened to us in our past and also from what we have done. But I'm so thankful that you are a healer, that you transform us. Thank you for the work of grace through the gospel. Lord, help us not to retaliate to one another, but to be merciful, to overcome evil with good. I thank you for our flock and pray that each one of us will live in a way that attracts others to Christianity, that people will want to join our community, study the Bible with us. So send us out with encouraging hope as you build our church. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.